Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. So the early church prayed for truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Here we are reminded once again that uh, even those evil and rebellious rulers can only do so insofar as the Lord permits. I'd like to continue our study of the book of Ezra. We had finished uh, his story, but there's still a couple of questions that we left behind. Uh, one of them was the uh, fair number of decrees that the heathen kings gave with respect to the worship of God. And uh, I told you I would come back and pick these up at some point. The title of my sermon is Anti-Disestablishmentarianism. Some of us were told in elementary school that that was the longest uh, word in the English language. Uh, I've since learned that there are a few other technical words which are actually longer than that. So it's not the longest, but uh, it is one of the most impressive. That and supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Anti-disestablishmentarianism. What in the world is that? There was the uh, position against the establishment, the, against the disestablishment of the uh, Anglican Church. It arose a few times in England, and then this was again uh, discussed here in Virginia, in the Old Dominion here, where the Anglican Church was established. And uh, what should the new country do? The Founding Fathers were divided on this matter, but as you know, the disestablishmentarian position prevailed. Was that the right way to go? It's an interesting question and one that Ezra may be able to help us with. I'd like to read to you from Ezra chapter 7, starting in verse 11. Ezra 7, verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra, the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commands of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra, the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace, and so forth. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And whereas you're being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and whereas you are to carry silver and gold, which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, And whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. Now, therefore, be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs with the grain offerings, the drink offerings, and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and your brethren... To do with the rest of the silver and gold, do it according to the will of your God. Also the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem, and whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it from the king's treasury. 
And I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently. Up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limit. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it diligently be done for the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Also, we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nethanim, or servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and teach those who do not know them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. Blessed be the God of our fathers who has put such a thing in, as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me and I gathered the leading men of Israel to go up with me. Let's pray together. Our Father, King of the nations, uh, ruler over earth's princes, we are reminded once again that the king's hand, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and you turn it like a watercourse wherever you wish. We pray that even in our day, as uh, we lament those rulers that uh, you have seen fit to give our uh, nation, uh, that they have uh, not sought you diligently, nor uh, uh, given uh, evidence of a uh, sincere faith or a good testimony toward you. We pray that um, even as uh, you have promised in your word that no evil ruler should long remain over your chosen domain, so too we claim uh, now that privilege as those who are under the dominion of Christ. We pray that uh, you would be pleased to uh, bless our nation with good and godly rulers, that you would continue to establish the free exercise of our religion in this land, and that you would allow us to uh, be wise in um, our exercise of that liberty as well. In any case, though, Father, even if uh, such privileges should at any point be taken away, we know that the uh, uh, purposes of the Lord shall stand, that it is from time to time uh, your decree that uh, lands should suffer under evil rulers as a chastisement for past sins, and that even at these times you are doing uh, mighty work in the world. We think of China, whom I mentioned earlier, uh, Indonesia, Iran, these uh, places that had uh, uh, previously or currently under uh, total totalitarian uh, rulers. Uh, nevertheless, your gospel is not bound and continues to run. We pray that even despite the power of such rulers, that you would bless the churches in these lands. We think again of the people of Romania, whom we have uh, mentioned several times, and how under those evil days of Ceausescu, how the gospel renewed the heart of a nation and brought its courage back to, to life. So now we pray that those former lands that were ruled in the east by atheist rulers under the 
uh, puppet rulership of, of, uh, of uh, the Soviets. We pray that these would be able to renew the strength of their historic uh, Christian life and witness, and that you would bless them with a lively and evangelical faith. We thank you again as the ruler of nations that though we put no confidence in princes, we do have great confidence in that ruler who you have put over all, whose counsel is wonderful, uh, who's, uh, uh, who is the prince of peace, um, of the increase of his reign and of peace, there is no end. And so this is our confidence, despite all the raging of the nations today, may the kings of the earth kiss the sun and turn his wrath, that they may rather be blessed. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, um, I was going to begin by saying that one of history's most thorny problems has been the proper relationship between God and country. But as I began to say that this evening, I realized that really it's not been a problem that people have given much thought to. We have had profound problems over the years, and yet this is not something that people really think about very often. Christians today have various views on this matter, and we are faced with a number of practical difficulties that bring it to mind. I mean, some people, for instance, think that Christians have no business trying to pass righteous laws. Others say, no, this is exactly what the Lord would require of us. Some people say that Christians have no business serving in a worldly government. Some say that Christians have a particular obligation, rather, to become magistrates because we know the will of the ruler and judge of nations. Some say that because God is supreme, earthly rulers should never be resisted. Others say no, because God is supreme, they must be resisted, at least passively, whenever they stray from what is right. The Bible says that the powers that be are ordained by God, but what does it practically mean for people living under a government of the people, by the people, and for the people? We... We, we uh, look at the Bible, and many people see two and only two alternatives for government. Uh, people think, well, we could have a secular pluralist government, like we have in modern America, where there's no establishment of religion, no other rules of morality except majority rules. Or we could have a theocracy like Iran today, like various Christian kingdoms, at least in the Middle Ages, uh, like that terrible show I've never seen, The Handmaid's Tale. Um, well, are these the only two choices? I mean, God does tell us what a theocracy is like. God established a theocracy in the days of Moses for Israel, his holy nation. We know what that looks like. Um, later, of course, the Christian church was completely separate from the Roman government when it was constituted by the Lord and his apostles. No, no relation at all, except um, enjoying maybe some of the uh, protections of, of Rome in those days. The church had an independent existence, as it still does today. We know what that looks like, too, reading the book of Acts. It looks a lot like modern America, frankly. So we know what a theocracy looks like from reading Moses, we know what complete separation of church and state looks like from reading the book of Acts. But, you know, things changed in the fourth century, not just in the west, in the, in the east, in the south. Um, Armenia was the first kingdom to adopt Christianity as its official religion in 301 A.D. 
Some people think that uh, Rome was the first Christian kingdom uh, under Constantine, but in fact, Rome was not the first, and Constantine didn't even establish the Christian faith in Rome. He merely made it legal. In fact, it wasn't until 380 that his successor made Christianity the religion of the realm. Rome was not the first Christian kingdom. It wasn't even the second. Anyone want to guess what the second Christian kingdom was in the world? Ethiopia. Uh, here we go. One in, uh, one in the Asian continent, one in the African continent. It didn't come to the West until 380. All right. Well, what did Constantine do? You ask if he didn't establish Christianity as the official religion of Rome? He did not. But uh, here, well, here's his famous edict of Milan in 313. He, he said, uh, uh, skipping down a little bit, we grant the Christians and others full authority to observe that religion which each preferred whence any divinity, that is any God, whatsoever in the seat of the heavens may be propitious and kindly disposed to us and all who are placed under our rule. We have given to those Christians free and, restrict, and unrestricted opportunity of religious worship and we have also conceded to other religions the right of open and free observance of their worship for the sake of the peace of our times, that each one may have the free opportunity to worship as he pleases. This regulation is made that we may not seem to detract from any dignity of any religion. You're like, that's not what they told me in school. That's the Edict of Milan. That's what Constantine did. He made Christianity, which had formerly been an illegal and heavily persecuted religion, especially under his predecessor, into a legal religion. And as a matter of fact, he granted legal status to all religion. Now, didn't he do some other things? Yes, he certainly did give money to the church as a Christian man, and he passed some important laws which were undeniably favorable toward Christianity. For instance, June 8th, 316, Constantine added a fourth legal method in Rome for freeing slaves. One which, unlike the first three, uh, which had been on the books for years, did not cost their masters anything. They could freely release their slaves without any further responsibility for them if they did so in a church in the presence of a bishop. The idea being that the church would take on their support and help them train for work if necessary. They wouldn't just become a burden on the empire. Okay. So previously, masters had to pay to free their slaves. Now it's free if you do it in the church. March 3rd, 321, all the judges and inhabitants of cities and craftsmen were to rest on Sunday, but farmers were free to work on Sunday as necessary. Okay? No penalty proscribed. Okay? So uh, 321 Sunday was basically proclaimed a weekly holiday or holy day, to be precise, in the empire. Government was closed. Circuses were closed. People were given off work. Uh, again, no penalty. It was just the announcement of a holiday. April 18th, 321, any slave who was freed before a bishop automatically was granted Roman citizenship, a very valuable thing. But just as the church had abolished this distinction between slave and free in the assembly, the emperor wanted that already, what was already abolished in the church, to be abolished in the state. And so 
encouraging people to uh, make their bondsmen free through the bishop. Five, uh, 333, May 5th, 333. If parties to a lawsuit may request their case to be heard by a bishop rather than a secular judge, that request was to be granted. So something like binding arbitration that we have today. You remember Paul's encouragement that if brothers had a disagreement, they should not go to the civil authorities. Well, Constantine recognized the rightness of that and recognized that in law. You could still appeal, I suppose, but several other laws uh, were passed that, that uh, likewise, certainly at least, gave an advantage or favored Christi Christianity. Now, the point here is that the new situation that emerged under Constantine was not a theocracy, anything like Israel, nor was it the complete separation of church and state that we have today. It was a third thing, a third way. What are we to think about that? And you might know that uh, this third way is more or less still practiced in many Christian nations today. For example, uh, in Germany, the state supports the Protestant church and the Catholic church. Do you know that? These call it the evangelical church. They call it now the Protestant church and the Catholic church. Uh, there is religious education in German schools taught by teachers who have to be approved by the churches, not by the state. Um, back, uh, back in 2006, there was a uh, request by some department stores in Berlin. Actually, they were national department stores, but uh, they, they, they just said uh, to, the, to the local government of Berlin, look, we would like to be able to open up on Sunday for just four Sundays ahead of Christmas. It's such a busy shopping season. Uh, people are wanting us to be open just for a couple hours, could we please open up for the four Sundays before Christmas? Uh, the, the local government said, okay, sure, uh, no, no problem. But it was appealed, and it went up to the Supreme Court, and in 2009, the Supreme Court overturned that because Article 140 of the German Constitution says that as a Christian nation, Sunday is a day of rest, and therefore stores cannot open on Sunday. Uh, supermarkets, of course, are open for six hours, uh, drugstores the same, and for the same reason. So necessity is taken care of, but uh, still, still today in Germany's largest economy, it's a, it's a Christian nation. The church is established. There are Christian laws on the books that uh, carry forward all the way, I suppose, from Constantine. Uh, one example among many. So I, I say all this by way of introduction to you, as you may have never thought about this, as you may have simply assumed that America is just like at least every other nation of the West. It is not. What should we think about this? What should we think about the Roman Empire under Constantine? What should we think about Christian nations of Europe today in particular? Should nations be giving tax money collected from unbelievers to support the church or the churches of its choosing? Should Christian education be supported by the state? Should the worship of God be supported by the state? Wouldn't this destroy civil rights or freedom of conscience? Well, um, what are we to think about this? It's, it's not a theocracy, which we know from Moses. It's not separation of church and state, which we know from the New Testament. What should we think about this, this third approach to government? Well, 
we, we come to the passage uh, to, to learn where such a, an arrangement um, began in the life of the people of God, as they are now returned to the land, no longer a sovereign theocratic nation as they used to be under heathen rulers, and yet not with the complete separation of church and state either. Let's take the old approach to our passage, exposition, doctrine, and application to try to cover some of these matters before us. First, what does the Word of God say? Let's begin there. Here in the book of Ezra, we find this new situation that begins here at this point in the timeline. Previously, in the days of uh, Moses, through the uh, end of the kingdoms, we had the theocracy. Then Israel was conquered and taken into exile in Babylon. And initially then we had a, co- a total separation of church and state uh, that for, for a couple years anyway. But even there in Babylon, you remember that God began to reveal himself to the rulers of the East in a very dramatic and powerful way. Read the book of Daniel, for example, where ruler after ruler are humbled before the God, uh, God of heaven. Well, the king of Babylon at one point, for instance, issues a decree that uh, men had to reverence our God and that uh, they could not break the third commandment, (laughs) Daniel 3. I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made an ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Uh, not necessarily approving of all the ins and outs of that law, you, un- you understand. But that is that was the law under Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, as God demonstrated his power before him. Third co- the third commandment was uh, made a capital crime in Babylon. Uh, see also chapter 6 for another ruler. Well, soon after the Persians conquered Babylon... God began to turn the heart of the Persian kings in a new direction as well. Those Persian rulers let the conquered peoples return to the lands, not just the Jews, but the others also. And in the case of Israel, at least, the Persian Empire not only let them go back, but uh, began to support the worship of God and its sacrifices, Um, who, as we read in chapter 6, paid generously for the rebuilding of the temple and uh, continued to pay for the education of God's people according to the law of Moses with tax money. Uh, It it was not a theonomic arrangement, we might say. The the law of Moses was taught and enforced, but uh, also the law of the king, you understand. Uh, There was uh, modification and uh, uh, ultimate uh, ultimate rule of Persia. So it, it, it wasn't like they were just given a a total autonomy, you rule according to your theocratic way and don't, don't bother me. No, no it's, uh, it's the law of God and the end of the king. But anyway, in this new situation, here's the new situation I'm introducing to you that began in the book of Ezra. Israel is no longer a sovereign nation as it had been from Moses to the exile. It's now under the direct rule of the Persian governors who report to the king. There are many other peoples and religions in that province that we read about in this book and that we can read more about in Nehemiah. In fact, the peoples of the land greatly outnumber the Jews for several years after the return of Zerubbabel. Just a few thousand people originally came back and then a few thousand more and a few thousand more. Uh, All those other peoples had been moved in and so that the people of God 
for, for years after this, are still in total terror of the power of the people of the land. So uh, this is a new situation. Uh, God's people are under heathen rulers, but is God pleased with the offer from the king that his house should be rebuilt and his worship supported? Indeed, uh, people even being instructed through tax money, especially when it's being collected in the whole trans-Euphrates area from unbelieving peoples? Well, let's consider what the passage says. Uh, we, We did start at Ezra 7. I'll just remind you from Ezra 6, where we start, before we started reading, that uh, King Darius had first given the decree for the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, He ordered state funds to be provided to cover the costs, and uh, specifications were given. Sacrifices and other essentials were to be generously provided. Chapter 6, verse 8. Moreover, I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of these Jews, for the rebuilding of the house of God. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense from taxes on the region Beyond the river, that is uh, the Euphrates, right? The whole trans-Euphrates area to the west. This is immediately to be given to these men so that they are not hindered. And whatever they need, bulls, rams, lambs, burnt offerings for the Lord of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the request of the priests, let it be given to them day by day without fail that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. So the king orders that the Jews be left alone to carry out their plans and this worship without interference, upholding their autonomy. He also threatens in verses six through, uh, sorry, 11 through 12, severe punishment for anyone who goes contrary to his decree so that the state power is then used to enforce religious policy. And the cooperation between the Jewish religious leaders who do have the total run of the temple and its activities, and the Persian authorities, who don't even understand the law of God, each of them have their own separate spheres of authority, modeling, we might say, as it is in many European nations today, uh, a, a church-state relationship that, uh, where each has its own sphere, but having mutual benefit. Now we pick up in chapter 7 where King Artaxerxes makes another decree giving Ezra in particular some very generous logistical and financial support for reconstituting the Jewish religion as it ought to be observed, not just in its worship but even among its people. The the king orders his treasurers to provide silver and gold from levied taxes on the whole region uh, west of the Euphrates for this purpose, uh, mandating the uh, ongoing funding for worship. Uh, Ezra writes, verse 27, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this into the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Uh, at least then, uh, very clearly endorsing the, uh, the, the, the generous gift of the king to restore the worship of God through the temple in Jerusalem. As Isaiah prophesied, kings shall be your foster fathers and queens your nursing mothers. Ezra, who was both a scribe in the imperial court and a priest in Israel, was commissioned to ensure that God's law was being followed in Judah, commissioned by the king, who gave him authority and state backing, not just to teach, but to enforce 
that religious policy. And uh, even as we read elsewhere to appoint rulers and judges among the people, uh, ultimately under the authority of the Persian state. Why are the kings doing this? Um, I, I know there's other self-interests that's not being mentioned here, but three reasons are given in the passage. Number one, that sacrifices of sweet savor might be offered to the king of heaven. That is, that, that God should be praised. Number two, that prayer might be made for the life of the king and his sons. Don't forget to pray for us. And number three, that wrath might not come upon the king or his realm, implying that if they didn't do these things for the God of heaven, they would incur his wrath. Think about that. So we know from both previous and subsequent chapters that there were a great many adversaries to the Jews who did not approve of and who could not enjoy the worship of God's house. They, they completely refused any help in building the, the temple from them. It's one thing to give generously. It's another thing to help us build. Nevertheless, they were compelled by the king's decree. These enemies were compelled to submit and uh, to contribute to the uh, expenses of the sacrifice, to pay taxes and so forth. God's priests, meanwhile, were made exempt from taxes, which I think was a particularly good law. Um, so that's the situation. You know, if you want to look at what the theocracy means in Israel, we, we look back to, to Moses primarily, where it begins, where it takes shape. Um, if we want to look at uh, what it's like when God's people are just under a heathen government, but that heathen government wants to support the worship in some way, we, we turn back to the beginning of that, and here we are in Ezra. That, that is what's said. Now I'll, let me point out what's not said. And uh, I'm going to be giving you now the doctrine from our own church's uh, confession of faith. Uh, I mention this because... yeah. The, it is the official teaching of our church. It is what I believe. It, 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 the scripture proofs are available for you to study later. But uh, having considered the passage now, here, here is the, the doctrine. First, what's not said in the passage. The civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. It's clear that there is a separation of church and state here. The Persians, they have their own things going on. They, they know the Jews have their worship and their priests and their things. Uh, they don't understand necessarily what's going on, but they, they do recognize this has to be done to honor the king, lest wrath fall upon them or their realm. And so they give the support that is necessary. But they are not seeking to meddle in the affairs of the Jews. And uh, so it continues today, as I say, in, in uh, modern Christian countries. Now, here is what it, how it applies to the world today. The confession goes on. The confession of faith goes on. This, the general doctrine I'm going to give you. The gospel lays indispensable obligations among all classes of people who are favored with it. Magistrates are bound to execute their office in subserviency thereunto, administering government on Christian principles and ruling in the fear of God according to the directions of his word as those who shall give account to the Lord Jesus whom God has appointed to be the judge 
of the world, okay? Uh, rulers uh, are, are, are to exercise their office in the fear of God, right? The last words of David, he who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. Abraham going into Egypt, uh, complaining there's no fear of God in this place, right? He was wrong about that, but nevertheless, uh, generally speaking, uh, when the rulers of our nation take their office oath and say, so help me God, that's added because even our secular land recognizes that rulers must fear God or else what kind of scoundrels will we have? If, you don't, they don't, if they don't fear that they are going to be called to account by God for how they discharge that oath, we're going to have all kinds of problems. Uh, so uh, hence... Magistrates, as such, in a Christian country, are bound to promote the Christian religion as the most valuable interest of their subjects, and to do so by all means that are not consistent, that are not inconsistent, rather, with civil rights, and do not imply an interference with the policy of the church, which is the free and independent kingdom of the Redeemer, nor an assumption of dominion over conscience. So uh, this is this is specifically our ARP uh, edits uh, for the uh, older Confession of Faith here, that magistrates in a Christian country, well, what's that? Where Christianity is the established religion of the realm, like Britain, like where our people came from uh, originally, right? Um, that the church is to be established and uh, promoted in all ways that are not inconsistent, that is to say, that are consistent with people's civil rights, that do not interfere with the separate policy or government of the church, which is a free and independent kingdom of the Redeemer, and not an, nor an assumption over conscience, uh, not seeking to uh, 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 be tyrants over non-believers. Okay, um, that is the general uh, teaching of uh, all the... Reformed Protestant confessions um, that I'm aware of, except the Anabaptists. Uh, the magisterial reformers all had this view. This, this was the general understanding of the world from Constantine, or I guess I should say from the king of Armenia, um, until today in most places in the world. And now you see where they get it from. So that's the doctrine what does that have to do with us? What is the application of these things, therefore, to America? Well, I do think this has everything, first of all, to do with why we're here today. Here we are in Virginia. I just got back from Williamsburg. Some of you will know the uh, early seat of government of our colony. And uh, why was Virginia chartered in 1607? What was the purpose of Virginia as it began I read it to you, quote, we, uh, the royal we, the king, greatly commending and graciously accepting of their desires for the furtherance of so noble a work, which may, by the providence of Almighty God hereafter, tend to the glory of his divine majesty in propagating the Christian religion to such people as yet live in darkness and miserable ignorance of the true knowledge and worship of God, and may in time bring the infidels and savages living in those parts to human civility and to a settled and quiet government. We do by our letters, patents, 
graciously accept of and agree to their humble and well-intentioned desires. King James I, 1607 A.D. Uh, why are we here? Uh, because the king says uh, the, the people who are living in darkness need to see a great light. We, we need to bring the light of the gospel to them and uh, hopefully some civilization and good government as well. And um, so we're going to start a new colony in a place we'll call Virginia. Well, this was not just Virginia. Um, I, so far as I've been able to ascertain, every nation and state on earth believed this until 1781. As far as I can tell, until 1781, in every place on earth, the kings and rulers and nations, at least officially, bowed to some national god or gods, right? Um, maybe they weren't Christian, maybe they were Islamic republics, maybe other things, but every nation in the world had some religious affiliation, at least nominally. But then in 1781, with the success of our War for American Independence, one place on the whole earth had in their constitution, in core nation, nation oath, uh, no explicit claim to serve some god. You know what that place was? Rhode Island. America, such as it was, didn't have an operating system of government. The Articles of Confederation had yet to be ratified. So there were all, all these colonies. In all of the colonies, they were, there was an explicit Christian constitution with uh, 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 principles for office, very similar to what I've read to you. They need to be, be uh, in the fear of God according to Christian principles and so forth. But there was one place named Rhode Island where that was not the case. Um, Every other state constitution explicitly under the dominion of Christ and still part of what used to be called Christendom. Nevertheless, those American colonies got together. They wrote a constitution declaring uh, not only their free and uh, separate government from Britain, but also free and separate from the Lord Jesus Christ and any other religious affiliation. I mean, not, not so explicitly, but uh, saying there's no religious test for government and it's just we the people. Now, of course, the states still had their own things going on, but it was officially what we might call then a secular government or a secular nation as opposed to a Christian nation, and that's called the American experiment. A nation without a national religion or a national god, what's going to happen? Well, um, uh, Christianity remained the state religion, in a uh, number of the uh, new, new states, for example, people don't often realize that uh, in New England, for example, uh, the Congregational Church was the established church until the 1830s, right? We, we still had the establishment of religion in the states. We just didn't have it in the federal government. Um, but uh, 14th Amendment, that's going to be unlikely that uh, anything's going to uh, be possible like that now. I'm just giving you the history. Now there's a large divide in principle between America and most other historically Christian nations. Still, as I say in Europe, as we just saw in the coronation of King Charles III, Christian kings must pledge their allegiance to Jesus Christ and promise to support and defend the true reformed religion. I think that's the quote exactly from his coronation oath. In America, we don't pledge allegiance to Christ, but rather to support, uphold, and defend the constitution 
of the United States. We have separated church and state from the frankly unholy mixture that was present in England and many places before the uh, independence, the war for independence. But we have embraced a secular pluralism. So some things are good about this. We, we are in a situation very much like the book of Acts. We know how to operate. We have agreed that pastors shouldn't wield the sword and presidents shouldn't wield the keys to the kingdom. That's good. I suppose that was true in Persia as well. Uh, still true in most places in Europe. But we still have questions that linger for us today. We still have thorny questions which we realize that our secular pluralism has thrust upon us. Now, the origin of human rights, which I mentioned earlier, civil rights is the Christian religion. Even non-Christian historians uh, agree with this, right? Even the, dec- the, human, uh, the Human Rights Declaration of, of the United Nations in its introduction by, Jean, uh, by Jacques Maritain uh, acknowledges this. Um, and uh, these are human rights that have come from Christianity, which is why, for instance, the, uh, s- the communist nations wouldn't sign on to them they're atheistic, and why the Islamic nations demurred and have rejected them, given their, given their own, because they are not Christian. Can human rights, which originated in the Christian religion, continue with no firm basis? Maritain says, now we, we agree on the rights as long as nobody asks us where they came from, the, the primary author of, the, of that document. Should government money for education go to religious universities? I mean, we do that, but is that right? Or what about private religious K-12 schools? We don't do that in most, most states. Should government medical programs pay religious hospitals for services when chaplaincy is included. In fact, speaking of chaplains, should chaplains be employed by the military or by the Senate or Congress, as they are? Should we have faith-based initiatives where the government gives its money to religious organizations to accomplish some social good? Um, what, what should the laws of our nation look like if it's just majority rule? What about the situation in Germany when the laws of the nation actively um, put in mortal danger anyone that uh, had traced their descent from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What about when Jews were declared non-persons and exterminated? I mentioned that earlier. And they said, look, that that was the law of our land. Is there a higher law? Because it's not recognized in our Constitution. Here's a big question from our passage that many don't even want to think about. The Persian ruler said, "Um, I'm I'm doing this so wrath won't fall against my realm if we don't honor God as a nation. Was he right about that? Well, we just sang it from Psalm 2, where, where earth's rulers and judges are told that they better not set themselves against the Lord and against his Christ. They are not to rage and conspire in vain to break their bands and cast away their cords, meaning his rule and his law. They're to be wise and to be instructed by the Lord. They are to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling because the sun 
has, given, has been given those nations as he is heir to them. They are therefore to kiss the son, lest he become angry. They are to put their trust in the Lord. Why? Because if they don't kiss the son, they will be broken in pieces and their rulers will perish. And if they do kiss the son, all who put their trust in him will be blessed. Similar thoughts in Psalm 110, uh, taken up and also in Revelation. Well, is this something that's... um, unique, perhaps, to these uh, um, prophetic uh, passages. Oh, no, such judgments have fallen many, many, many times in history. I I refer merely in passing to large numbers of warnings in the Bible given by prophets to specific heathen nations that unless they repent of their sins, they and their rulers will perish. Just in Isaiah, for instance. Some of you studied last year. Such a warning is given to Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, Ethiopia, Egypt, Babylon, Edom, Arabia, and Tyre. All of those nations warned that they better uh, repent or they will perish. And did any of those nations survive? No, they did not. All happened exactly as God had warned. Exactly. Uh, Nations and rulers uh, needed to fear the Lord and uh, to obey him or else they were to perish. Similar sentiments in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Obadiah, for instance, written to Edom. Nahum, written to Nineveh. We can look at different nations in Amos. Daniel 2 says, look, he removes kings and raises up kings as he pleases. Uh, Belshazzar learned it the hard way. God writes on the wall of nation after nation. Mene, mene, tekel, ufarsin. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you're weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided, given to others. God tells them again and again, uh, before he does it, that the nations must fear, because, Daniel 4, the living must know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wishes. This is not a theory. This is what overthrew the great nations of the earth. God announced it before it happened so that people would understand. What does God expect? What does he demand of heathen rulers? What does he demand of the kings and judges of the earth? Well, the Bible tells them. The Bible doesn't only address the church and people's private lives. It addresses heathen rulers and nations and tells them, repent, serve the Lord, kiss the Son, lest you perish, and you be broken to pieces by the one who rules over all nations. What is the future then for our republic? It's time for me to finish up. So our country has been until recently extremely friendly to the Christian church, has in its unofficial ways in many things uh, still remained uh, Christian or at least in somewhat Christian practice, right? Prayers, opening legislative sessions. Uh, In the olden days, the Bible abundantly quoted in in laws uh, by jurists and so forth, right? Not so much today, but a century ago, things were very different. In the previous century, a Supreme Court justice could rule without fear of contradiction that the United States was a Christian country, not established, but in its, uh, in its national religious life. Christian belief, though certainly never embraced by all Americans, was still at least publicly respected and its practice legally protected, frankly, almost encouraged. Generally speaking, we have enjoyed the great blessings of being one nation under God. We have been blessed. 
Jesus taught us to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God what is God's. That's been very easy for us. But he also asked his audience, whose image is on this coin? Well, Caesar's, they replied. Caesar's image. And that question might have called to mind to his Jewish audience another deeper lesson. God's image was on Caesar, even as Caesar's image was on the coin. Caesar owns the coin. Caesar rules the land. But God owns Caesar, and God's image is marked upon him. It is to God that he is also responsible as a creature made in his image. Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. The Lord doesn't have two separate circles, one labeled Caesar's things and one labeled God's things. There's one big circle that are labeled God's things, and inside of that is a smaller circle labeled Caesar's, where God gives authority from heaven. But there are no neutral spaces, not in the public square, not elsewhere. And we need to recognize that... uh, Though we have been blessed in times past by the good favor of our God, as we have at least in our unofficial national capacity, honored, served, and praised him, perhaps like few other nations have done, that we may be entering into a difficult time. The threats here uh, given in the passage, the the trouble for the king and his realm, the the warnings in Psalm 2 that we sang about of uh, the the rulers uh, broken, the nations broken in pieces, uh, that this is what has happened historically to those who would not kiss the sun. That's how I read it. That's how the nations of the uh, Christian past have read it generally also. And I hope that this gives you at least something to think about if you disagree. But we'll close with the words of Jeremiah chapter 10, and on these we can agree. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? This is your due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we uh, pray that in these uh, difficult and confusing times when uh, America is wrestling with new things about its national life and character, uh, as we find ourselves not in a Christian nation, even in the uh, sense that it could be spoken of a hundred years ago, We pray that you would give your people wisdom and an understanding heart. We realize that in so many ways we're ahead of those Christian nations of Europe that have forgotten their God, even if they nominally still honor him. So uh, we pray that uh, you would bless our uh, country with wise and godly rulers who will fear you, who will rule according to uh, Christian principles, remembering that men are created in God's image and treat them accordingly. Uh, We pray for righteous laws and uh, uh, for uh, a happy land uh, that you would call the citizens of our nation back to you as ultimately we are the rulers, we are the people who have established a government and so it is that we the people need to be a, a people who know our God and who serve you at least in the main. So our Father, we pray that you would revive your uh, knowledge among the people that you should be praised for the days to come in our land. We thank you for the many blessings we still enjoy, for the gospel heritage that is ours, and pray that it might save us from many other...